Amen. Please remain standing for our scripture reading. Tonight's text is going to be found in the book of Ruth. I'm going to be reading the first five verses. God's holy word. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They they went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Elimelech and Naomi, like all married couples, went through their life and they experienced ups and downs, hurdles and valleys and good times and bad times. And they were faced with many decisions in their lives, as uh, many of us have been, especially some of us that are on the backside of our lives, we can look back and see decisions that we made, some that we're, we are glad about, things that were God-honoring, decisions that we made that were wise, and of course there's decisions that we made that we probably regret. regret. Perhaps uh, they led to a, a night of sleeping on the couch, or perhaps they were worse. Perhaps they led to uh, a wayward child or some kind of mistake, some kind of grave error. Other choices in life that we have no say-so in, we think of natural disasters. My mind always goes back to Katrina. You can think of it, perhaps a death in the family, maybe a loved one dying, but we are always defined by the decisions we make, even our reactions to decisions that we have no say in, be it a death or a natural disaster, they, they still shape our lives and oftentimes shape the lives of our posterity and the culture around us. But one constant is the grace of God, as Romans 8 28 teaches us that all things work together for those who love God. And at times, we may be confronted with, with things that seem out of, out of order, and uh, they trouble us. But we must remember, for the, for the Christian, the grace of God is always the constant in our life. Let's, uh, join me in prayer before we get started in our sermon. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that you would bless this moment as we open your word. I pray that your voice will be heard, not mine. If the people here today only hear Chris Bird speak, they will be none the better. But you have promised us that you are here with us, Father, and I pray that your Holy Spirit would be upon us. Block out any errors that I may speak and help us to hear you speak through your written word. In Christ's holy name, I pray. Uh, the title for tonight's sermon is Pragmatism and Pain. Uh, and when I went through my licensure exam, I got this big packet, and it had all sorts of questions on it, things they could possibly answer. And to be sure, the whole Bible was fair game, I was told. One of the questions that I could be possibly asked was, where in the Old Testament do you find the gospel? 
And uh, I answered correctly. I said, well, Genesis 3.15, that's the kind of the standard reply. But I knew I had to go in front of the Presbyterian. Probably, maybe someone is going to ask that same question. One a guy advised me, well, you should say, it's throughout the Old Testament. But I kind of chickened out and gave the company line. I said, Genesis 3 is the answer. And that was the correct answer. That's what they were looking for. But know that the Old Testament is full of the gospel. And the book of Ruth is no exception. The title for the series is referring to a redeemer. And we're going to see the gospel on display. But as you know, for a gospel to be provided, there has to be some bad news first. The gospel is the good news, so what's the bad news? And I think in our text tonight, we are going to see some bad news. We're going to see some bad decisions. We're going to see some sinful actions by the people of God and the Elimelech's family in particular. Let's look at verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Now we see that in the days when the judges ruled. And to be sure, Ruth is a historical narrative document. It's a story, it's a true story about what happened at this time and place. And typically historical narratives open with a timestamp. This is where, this is when, this is what's happening. But know that the author is telling us something here. In the days when the judges ruled, if you flip back one page in your Bible... The last verse of Judges 25, excuse me, uh, chapter 21, verse 25, says this. In the days, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So I think the author is telling us a little bit about the culture in this time of the Judges. There was disobedience. There was adversity. There was covenant faithlessness. It was a period of rebellion and sin. Typically, the Christians, or excuse me, the people of God would uh, act poorly, and God would bring judgment to them. Early on in the book, in the book of Judges, in that period, the people would repent. But as time went on through that period, the repentance seemed to disappear. Repentance in the book of Judges is missing towards the end of the book. And we see this downward spiral going on in this time of the judges. And I think that is what a, a point that the author is telling us. It's a theological note about the culture in which this story is taking place. We see this downward spiral. We see a nation that has completely lost its way. At times, their behavior rivaled that of the people in their neighboring countries, their enemies. We see their behavior rivaling the pagan nations. We see disobedience, and we see judgment, and we see this continuing, and we see it in our first verse. Again, we see, in the days when the judges ruled, there was famine in the land of Bethlehem. And to be sure, this was one of God's judgment for his people. Famine was something he had reserved to call upon when his people were acting poorly. If you look in, uh, excuse me, in uh, Leviticus chapter 26, you see this on display. God says in verse 14, but if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, I skip down to verse 19, I will break the pride of your power and I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze and your strength shall be spent in vain for your land shall not yield its increase 
and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. This was one of the weapons God saved in his, in his arsenal to discipline his people. He used famine to correct. I don't, you Paul probably remember last summer we had a great drought. And our scripture here describes the ground turning into like bronze. And I vividly remember last summer I had to dig it like a six foot trench to put some underground pipe to install another water trough. And the ground was literally like bronze. I went about six inches, and my son laughs because every time we hit that pipe, it breaks because it's only six inches deep. You couldn't get any deeper, and uh, I can relate to that. God is saying, I'm going to make your ground like bronze, and it's going to be hard, and there's going to be no fruit. There was famine in Bethlehem, and the term Bethlehem literally means house of bread. So we know God is dealing harshly with his people here. The house of bread is barren. And this is when Elimelech makes his decision. Let's look at verse 2. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi. Their two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah, and they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Because of their sin, the house of bread became a place of want. So Elimelech... He's got his family, and he's got a problem. There's not much to eat, so he's got two choices. He can remain in Bethlehem, the place where he's called to live. These are the people of God. They've been called out of Israel. This is where they're to be. He can remain in Bethlehem. He can trust God. He and his people can repent of their sin, or he can do what? He can move to another country. He can move on to greener pastures. But to be sure, these are not two equal choices. This isn't me taking a job and moving from Mandeville to, say, Jackson, Mississippi, or for uh, someone in Macomb moving to Memphis to take on a job. Moab was a terrible place, and it was at enmity with God, and their origin was in utter depravity. If you will, turn in your Bibles to Genesis 19, verses 30 through 38. One of the more sordid tales in a scripture. But it is the word of God and it is truth. I pick up in Genesis 19 verse 30. Lot and his daughters. Now Lot went up to Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters. And he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old and there is not a man on earth to come into us after... After the manner of all the earth, come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus, both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. So we see the origins of the nation of Moab. You've got Elimelech. 
He's a, a child of God. He's going to take his family and move to this land and know that Moab had a history of fighting against the people of God. Wicked King Balak hired Balaam, and y'all are all familiar with Balaam. He, was gonna, he hired him to put a curse on the people of Israel. If not for a talking to by his donkey, perhaps he succeeds, but we know the story. Also, Moabite women had been uh, seducing Israelite men and confronting them with foreign gods for generations. They were the perpetual enemy of the people of God. Does this sound like the proper place to raise a family? But both Lot and Elimelech wanted greener pastures. Elimelech should have considered his name. His name literally means God is king. But how do we make decisions? Oftentimes, the important ones in our lives, we resort to pragmatism as well. We often do the same thing when we choose a career. Young men often look, they look at the top line. What's the salary? They don't consider the area where they're going to move. They don't consider the implications for their, their family. They don't consider the possible hours away from the family. I've known many a fellow that's taken a job and it's separated their, himself from their family for large periods of time. And I think that's a, a factor. I think that's something we as Christians should consider. And when we counsel people, young men and young women about taking a career choice. This is something we should consider. I had a friend of mine that, uh, he was Presbyterian, PCA. We went to church together for several years and uh, our kids and his kids about the same age and he moved to the East Coast. And I didn't like the idea at the time, the church that they went to, I wasn't comfortable with it. And, uh, but they moved and they went and everything was fine. It seemed like they were in a happy place. Everything was good. Subsequently that, to that, a few years later, he gives me a call, and I can tell, you know, he's brokenhearted. His children were involved. They had graduated high school, gone on to college, didn't survive long in college, and they were involved in all sorts of terrible sins. And I, could, you know, I didn't want to say, you know, you should have thought of that five years ago when you made this decision of moving, taking your family to this, to this strange area and going to this strange church. He had called and asked me questions about the church that he was going to, and I could see it was not the proper place. And oftentimes when we make these decisions, it's hard for us to recognize it immediately. Things are going smoothly. Everything's going fine. Sometimes paydays down the road, and the impact on our families can be great. And we must consider these things whenever we make our decisions, especially these long-term decisions but often we resort to what the people in the time of the judges were doing. We do what's best in our own eyes. We have the choice of Elimelech. Secondly, I want us to see the choice of Naomi. Back to our text in Ruth, verses two and three. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of the wife, Naomi. And the names of the two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Well, Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. Was the decision to move to Moab a bad decision? Again, it's not always immediate. You know, they consider Lot and Abraham, or Abram, in Genesis 13. Both of these two gentlemen had large herds of livestock. 
And they were going together, and they were grazing these large plains of land, and uh, they both had uh, their own herdsmen, they had their own foremen, and these two groups of animals were probably, the men were probably fighting over the best land to graze. I can envision it. You know, you've, got, you've seen the westerns, you've got the, the cowboys from the two groups, and they're trying to, hey, that's my water. No, that's my water. So Abram says to Lot, hey, we don't need to fight. There's enough land for all of us. We can split up. We can go our separate ways. You can graze this way. I'll graze that way. In fact, Lot, you make the first choice. Decide where do you want to go? Which direction would you like to go? I'll give you the decision. Lot, in his haste, man, he's thinking, man, this is a great idea. He's given me free choice. I'm going to take the good land. And he chooses the Jordan Valley. Scripture tells us in Genesis that it's well watered. And when you have large groups of animals, cattle, livestock, water is extremely important. And Lot, in his greed, chose the Jordan Valley. And I, I, I work in Mandeville in the construction industry, and I often think of some of the subdivisions that come up, and I, can, I think the Jordan Valley, you know, that would be a great name for a new subdivision. And he could, you know, you could say it's near the city. It was near the city of Sodom. Lot moves there. It sets up his camp near Sodom. They could kind of make a connection between Sodom and New Orleans. It's close to New Orleans, just a causeway away. But uh, subsequently to this, to Lot's decision, Lot was captured by Kadarla Omer. I hope I said that right. And again, he comes under, he's, he's cat, made captive, and Abram comes to his rescue. But what does Lot do after his rescue? He moves back into the city. Probably the worst decision of his life. You all know the story. We've heard about what his daughters did to him after this, and we know what happens to his wife. He moves into a place, he takes his family into a place, a very dangerous place. Was Sodom a healthy place to raise two daughters, to offer them up? His virgin daughters, he offered them at that, at, we all know the story. Like Elimelech, Lot made a choice, and the mistake wasn't easily recognizable for either man right away. But back to, to Moab. For the Elimelechs, everything seemed fine. Their family was eating. Back in Bethlehem, their countrymen were hungry. The wife and the son seemed to be adopting to the new culture. They were comfortable. They were probably profiting. They were probably doing quite well in this new land. But their decision after the death of the husband seems to take on a permanent status. Let's look at verses 3 and 4 again. Well, Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The names of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years. The sons took wives there. I mean, I, when, when they set out, they were going to sojourn in this foreign land. I think they probably thought, we're just going to go there and set up camp, get some food, and we'll move back home in due time. But the, the husband dies, and Naomi's decision is now uh, at hand. And she's saying, let's stay and establish roots. I kind of like it here. It's more comfortable in the land of plenty than over the land of promise, the land of Judah. But because of Naomi's decision, the sons take Moabite wives. And you're probably thinking, well, Maybe these Moabite women were nice. Maybe they came with a dowry. Maybe they came with some land. But in Deuteronomy 7.3, the 
Scripture strictly prohibits this type of marriage. It wasn't allowed. So we have sin and consequence. We see the pattern repeating itself. Lot goes to Sodom, raises his daughters there. They do this wicked act of sin, and that creates Moab. Elimelech moves his family to, to Moab, his wife's sin, and then we've got three dead men. We've got the two dead sons and the dead husband. Often, Christians struggle with the decision to step outside the will of God. But once they're there, when it's easy to re remain, we do. Sinning and remaining in sin requires little effort. Sometimes we might struggle to do something against our conscience the first time. But after we've done it once, it becomes much easier. Perhaps Naomi, when they first decided to move to Moab, maybe she hesitated. Maybe she said, honey, I don't think that's such a great idea. But once the decision was made, she seems to be all on board, and her husband dies, and she decides to stay. She decides to remain with the Moabites. And often Christians struggle with the same thing. We do the same thing. We remain in our sin because it requires little effort. I don't know if any, we have any country music fans out here, but you all are all pro probably familiar with Tom T. Hall. He had one of my favorite country songs, and my favorite by him is called Homecoming. And I always kind of thought it's a song a little bit about himself. If you're not familiar with the song, it's about a, a Western country singer. He's on the road, and he's coming back home to see his dad. And he's driving down the driveway, and he notices the slick and fat cattle. And he goes on to tell his dad how sorry he's been for missing out on everything. The mother has died. She's passed. And he, he said, by the time I found out, it was too late. I was already, you were, she was already in the ground. And he laments how he's, uh, it looks like he's, in, he's very pale. No, I didn't just get out of jail. And I think that he's telling about the, the shortcomings of that kind of lifestyle. And you get this vibe that he's the prodigal son, and all that he's got to do is return home to his dad and stay. But then he laments, you know, there's a girl in the car. He's trying to tell his dad, no, she just works for me. But you get this idea that that's his girlfriend, but she's passed out in the back seat. And he goes, well, we've got to go to another, another show tonight in Cartersville. And it just reminds me of this. It reminds me of uh, Tom T. Hall. His dad was a Baptist minister in real life. And you think of him going on the road, and you think of him reflecting on, you know, maybe it would have been quieter to stay at home with dad and the cows and mom and family. And he's kind of lamenting this decision he made. And you can, you can just, it's a very interesting song. And we know how Mr. Hall, or you may not know, how he ended his life. He took his life in, in his later years. Very sad. One of a, a very a telling song in a very sad scenario. Ian Dugweed uh, read his commentary on the book of Ruth in this chapter, and he had this good quote. It's easier to bear the pain of continued emptiness than to confess our pursuit of fullness in the wrong place. And I think we see that not only in Ruth and in the country singer, but we, we do see it in, in Ruth today, I should say. You see Naomi, she's probably embarrassed. My dad's, he's died excuse me, my husband, and I'm, she's too embarrassed to return home. She could, she could have left at that moment. And I think that's what's confronting Tom Hall in that song. And I think it confronts a lot of Christians today, too. It's easier to remain in their sin 
than it is to come back to church to the house of God and to repent. No, Noemi, no, Noemi's husband was dead. Perhaps she was feeling empty at this point, but she was comfortable. She had her two sons, so they remained in Moab for a decade. But one telling factor is her sons produced no offspring, but she continued down this path to nowhere. Did Elimelech and Naomi ever think their sons would take strange wives when they sojourned in Moab? Or were they going just for food? That's the question that remains, and they need to recognize this. But in the background, God is at work. So we've seen Elimelech's decision, we've seen Naomi's decision. Now we see God corrects and disciplines his children. Let's look at verse 5. And both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. No, Naomi, instead of placing confidence in God and returning to her land when her husband died, she places her confidence not in God, but in her two sons, in pragmatism. She will live amongst the heathens, and her sons will produce children. I'm sure that's what she's thinking. This is comfortable. This is where we are. Let's remain. But God was at work. The true danger the true danger is when God leaves us to our own devices. How bad would it be for Naomi if God answered her sin with increased comfort? As we see in the book of Judges, God is establishing his pattern. Disobedience is followed by judgment. Disobedience and then judgment and hopefully blessing. Man, he does what is right in his own eyes. God, he warned and then corrected his people Israel. God brought famine, and then he lifts famine. I don't want to give it away, but I know this evening crowd's all read the book of Ruth. And in the sixth verse, we read that uh, God is going to lift his um, curse on the land in Bethlehem. So God brings famine, and he brings seasons of repentance. Bethlehem had repented. The question remains, will Naomi repent? Elimelech and Naomi both chose this path to destruction. The three men of the family, they're dead. They're gone. For the three men, the chance for repentance was gone. But God had not left Naomi utterly alone. Hope for return and repentance for her still remained. God enjoys. His desire is to restore his wayward children. God will judge sin, to be sure. But a, a positive outcome is not guaranteed when we step outside the will of God. Unfaithfulness leads to death. And even worse, it can lead to spiritual death. Of course, not all the covenant community who are disobedient to God will return. We think of the three men in this story. They are not returning. Some, some who appear to be of the church are not. We look at the, the epistle of John you don't have to turn there, but 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, you probably know this verse. They went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might be plain that they, are, they all are not of us. What's God telling us here? If not for God's grace, all of, in any of our lives, all of us would leave the fold. 
like the three men in our text, they are gone without a trace. They are, in, they are turning to dust in a foreign land of their enemies. But God's grace remains. God has a plan for Naomi. First, she must swallow her pride. Unlike the, the country music singer in the song, The, the Homecoming, she must first confess her sins and return. She must return to her covenant family. Her, she must go back broke and humble. Gone are her husband, gone are her two sons. Can you imagine the humiliation returning to her people? And this, but this is what she needed. She needs to make a decision to repent. And that's my last point. Perhaps we have made an error in our judgment. Perhaps the road is clogged by our pride and ease in remaining in our sin. Sin against our children. Perhaps we've sinned against our children. Perhaps we've sinned against a sibling. Perhaps somebody at work, an employer. Perhaps we've sinned against God, our creator. But like these Old Testament characters, we struggle. We trust self. We trust our work. We trust our prosperity over the law of God. In pragmatism, that seems to be the American motto. In pragmatism, we trust. We don't go to the sources. We don't return to the standards for our lives. We trust in human nature. We trust in the, the devices that we can come up with to make our lives comfortable and pleasing to us. In pragmatism, we trust. But the road to spiritual blessing is simply a first step in a change of direction. If God has given us another day, there is still time to change course. For all of Naomi's poor decisions, hope for her still remains, and God's work of discipling his children is never too much or too harsh. Discipline by God is always thoughtful and measured by an omniscient Lord who loves his children. Our Lord is conforming us to his image and preparing us to live with him in glory forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this time when we got to delve into your word. I pray that it was, it was correct, Lord. I pray that you were heard. I pray that uh, your word would uh, etch upon our hearts and upon our minds, and it would help us as we go into the world, help us to make decisions that are based upon your word. Help it to be the standard for our life. In Christ's name I pray, amen.